Take your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts, chapter 7. We're going to return to this book after taking a little hiatus through a short series. We'll find ourselves now with a sermon that Stephen is giving. As some of you may know, Stephen was the first martyr of the church. And so we'll get to that point later as we progress through this chapter. I first would like to read, though, from chapter 6, just for the sake of context, and then we'll take a look at chapter 7. It says this, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and those of Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Well, let's all stand as we take a look at Acts chapter 7. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I, have show, that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran, and after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nations that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. So, Father, as we gather together here and we consider your word, I pray that you'd help our minds to be sharp, our hearts to be open, and our wills moldable, willing to bend to your will. We acknowledge, Lord, that your word is for our benefit. And so I ask that as we approach this today, that you would work in us things that maybe we never imagined. It might be encouragement. It might be a challenge. It might be shining a light in an area we weren't aware of. Whatever it is, we invite your Holy Spirit to do a work as only you can. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Jonathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi of Great Britain, once referenced what he called 
the counterintuitive phenomena of Jewish history. And this, I think, would apply to Christians as well. He said, and I quote, When it was hard to be a Jew, people stayed Jewish. When it was easy to be a Jew, people stopped being Jewish. Globally, this is the major Jewish problem of our time. It runs counter to our thinking that when we face opposition and it's hard to be a Christian, that we grow and that we build, we might call a faith muscle. And yet this is exactly, I think, what we see taking place with Stephen. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Iran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. So here we have a text of the father of all Jewish people, Abraham. And it comes from one of the most time-honored sections of the Hebrew Bible in Genesis. And so Stephen provides a strong argument to support his assertion that here God was speaking. Here God was working, and it was not in the promised land. It was not in the geographical boundaries where people thought God really worked. Caiaphas, who was probably the high priest at this time, he asked Stephen if these charges of blasphemy against him are true. And Stephen doesn't really answer the question. Instead, Stephen gives them a history lesson. He shows the the faithfulness of God throughout the history of his people. He shows the disobedience of his people and the need for them to express repentance to a holy God. As you can imagine, they did not turn around and thank Stephen for this message. I mean, here's Stephen holding up a mirror in their face. And human religious efforts, which is what these people were doing, there was Stephen. That's a fact of life in every culture, is it not? Human religious effort. And yet Stephen declares that it's it's that kind of effort that has kept Israel from recognizing God's messengers in the past and even now as Stephen was speaking. I mean, just think about this. How tragic is it that Christian traditions or even Christian churches can get in the way. I mean, it's easy for us to say, well, those other churches, you know, outside of Christendom. But I'm talking about within Christendom, churches can get in the way of people knowing God. I mean, think of that. The very ones that should be facilitating the relationship with God can actually be setting up hurdles. We do this by putting upon the gospel some kind of man-made rules. We do this with 
political infighting in the church that muddies authentic relationships. We do this often with some will have the primary goal of of greed for for money or, or just more people. We do this by forgetting the mission that God has given all of us in the two greatest commandments, to love God and to love people well. We do this by making entertainment a goal for a Sunday service. We're telling people what they want to hear instead of worshiping God and calling a congregation to fall under the lordship of Christ and to follow Christ as a faithful disciple. Listen, I never want to present ourselves as, hey, we got this all down and we're doing all this right. I never want to say that or that we're doing it better than the next church. We have to approach our faith with great humility, do we not? I love what Kim said in the first service about how when they went to Guatemala, they don't go as, you know, here we are the Americans that have all the answers. No, you go, we are learning the culture. So we approach our faith with great humility. We try to understand what God is trying to say to us and his church. But we are called to live on mission. And that means that we seek to equip and empower God's people to use their gifts to expand the kingdom of Christ. And no human tradition is to supersede our mission. So Stephen addresses these leaders as a community of faith. He calls them brothers and fathers. There's a connection here as as fellow Jews, as fellow sojourners on this journey of faith. And I love that he speaks to them out out of respect and and out of honor. It's really a good example for us. You know, if you have to approach an authority, if you have to deal with an issue, if you have a, if you have a conflict and you have to have a, a, a tough talk with somebody, you're never in the wrong to speak with honor and respect, right? So he does this. But the difference is the Jewish community did not return that in kind. No, in fact they were guilty of persecuting and jailing the very ones who God had sent. And they had done this really all through their history. It persecuted the prophets. It persecuted the apostles. And Jesus, in fact, said this. Listen to the words of Jesus. He said, I have, I have said all these things to you, speaking to the disciples, to keep you from falling away. In other words, I I want you to be able to have the proper expectations is what he's really trying to say here. Uh, They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming then when whoever kills you, check this out, will think he is offering service to God. Here you have their own religious terrorism taking place. I'm working for God and I'm killing other people because they do not follow our traditions. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when this hour comes, you may remember that I have told them to you. So what we read here in the book of Acts is a fulfillment of Jesus' words to his disciples. Verse 2 says, And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. 
So here, the God of glory revealed himself to Abraham, where? In a pagan land, far to the east of the promised land. This was not a temple. This was not the land that God had promised his people. And this is, a, this is a concept that was so closely linked. In fact, some of the Jews believed that God never worked outside of the land. He never revealed himself. He never spoke to his people outside the land. But here we have Abraham in Mesopotamia hearing from God. God's activity was not confined to a geographical space or building. It's one of the beautiful things, I think, of living under the new covenant. We read in John 4, 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. You know what that means? That means old covenant, new covenant. New covenant, we can worship God anywhere. Old covenant, got to be in that temple, right? That's so what, what people thought, you got, you got to be in that temple. I remember Janet and I, when we first lived in St. Louis, we had this uh, church across the street from where we lived, and it said, this is God's house, right on the door. And it was in stone, so you couldn't remove it. It's like, that's just bad theology. It's not God's house. God doesn't reside in that building. We don't have to be in a temple to worship God. We can worship him anywhere in spirit. It seems to me there are many things that we take for granted that we think are biblical precedents, but really nothing more than human tradition in a church or in a faith community. And when we're willing to go to the mat for human tradition, we succumb to the same mindset that Stephen was battling with here in Acts 7. I mean, these were people willing to kill others who didn't oblige those traditions. Think of that. I mean, where does it say, for instance, that only a pastor can baptize? Where does it say that? Well, where does it say that you have to have um, communion in a church building. Well, where does it say you have to have a church building for that matter, right? Where does it say you have to do hymns or a certain kind of music? Where does it say you have to con- confess your sins to a human priest? Or you have to have an altar call or you have to have a, a certain order of service within the church? Now, none of these things are, you know, bad in and of themselves. Tradition alone is not bad. But in the case of the Jews in the first century, they upheld tradition. They denied the prophets in the face of their tradition. They crucified the Messiah in the face of their tradition. And they eventually would kill Stephen. Sorry to ruin the story for you, but that's what happens in the end of the chapter, okay? So every one of us have our traditions. We just need to make sure they point us in the right direction instead of pushing us away from worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Verse 3, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. 
Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. Here we see the, the gracious activity of God who worked despite the fact that Abraham was not in a prescribed religious location, right? He appeared in verse 2. He spoke in verse 3. He removed Abraham in verse 4. He made a promise in verse 5. He spoke again in verse 6. God actively working. And he wasn't in the promised land. He wasn't in a temple. Temple didn't even exist yet. Abraham, the esteemed patriarch, the one to whom God gave this promise, is an example, really, of of a promise deferred. In fact, look with me at Genesis chapter 12. Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 12. And we're going to see when this promise was given and what it says. And I want us to notice something about this. Genesis 12, 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I'll make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse you. And we're going to talk more about that later. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar uh, uh, to the Lord who had appeared to him. To your offspring, I will give this land. And then Stephen said, Abram is not given a foot of ground. Now, I think this can have one of two meanings, or both, that when the promise was given to Abraham, he had zero possession of the land, no son, no heir to give that land to. Secondly, this land wasn't just for Abraham, but it had a deed given by God for other people, his offspring, to enjoy. Abraham couldn't say, this is my land, and this is only my land. His offspring was promised to enjoy the blessing of the land. Even though he was up in age, even though he had no son, yet he trusted God. And the Jews greatly revered Abraham. They prided themselves in being his children. And they confused physical descent with spiritual experience. They depended on a national heritage rather than their own personal faith. 
I mean, listen, growing up in Springfield in southwest Missouri or growing up in a church or growing up in a Christian family does not make one a Christian. One has to personally come to terms with the gospel. And what does that mean? That means we admit our sin before a holy God and we acknowledge his provision in Christ. Paul said it this way in Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In other words, saved from your sins, saved from from hell. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years, but I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. Abraham's descendants would be sojourners in a foreign land, but they eventually would come to worship God as a nation in their own land. It appears that the greater goal for Abraham and the people of God was not not just land, but it was to worship God freely, being devoted to God. Somehow, the Jewish officials before Stephen had forgotten this point. The fact is, is that God's people had to wait 400 years while being in bondage in Egypt. I mean, suffering was a part of the gig. Suffering was a part of following God. And God, would, God was using that time, by the way, to judge other nations. Remember that promise when he said that I will bring a curse to the other nations? He was judging other nations for their treatment of his people. So giving the land to God, to Abraham's descendants was in part a judgment upon the idolatrous nations. Genesis 15, 16 says here that the Lord gives a reason for the delay in transferring the land. It says, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And right on the edge of the promised land, Moses told the children of Abraham, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. So God eventually took the land from the idolaters and he turned it over to his children. And although Abraham was faithful, neither he nor his descendants for four centuries could possess the land. See, a promise delayed is not a promise denied. We have to learn to trust God and wait on him. That's hard to do. When we don't get what we want, when we want it, to wait on God, that's where the trust comes in. And that's difficult. Let's apply that. Consider getting ourselves into debt over our heads because we cannot wait on God. We're not content with what God gives us. 
Or how about jumping into the sack with somebody who's not our spouse because we cannot wait on God to meet our needs? Or it's what causes us to lash out to someone who's close to us that we perceive did not meet our need for approval or acceptance because we refuse to look to God and wait on him to meet that need of our heart. You know, you look across Springfield and there are over 400 churches in this area. 400. You think that's enough? I don't know. I'm just... No, we got to start a new one. Right? They don't do it like we do. Uh, <laughs> but floating around amongst these 400 churches, for some, are a lot of different ideas about how to approach Christianity, right? A lot. And for some, they either actively or passively would have you believe that if you believe God and follow him, everything is going to work out in your favor. Somebody take a hammer to my head right now because I hate to ruin it for you, but that's not a Bible concept. It's not. I mean, it's great if a person is healed. That's great. It'd be great if you unexpectedly had money show up. If you won the publisher's clearinghouse contest, that would be great, all right? But those who think that becoming a Christian means that you're gonna be set up for those kinds of things in great measure, and you're not gonna experience hardship, okay, that's just bad theology, and you're setting yourselves up for great disappointment with God. We make no promise here that following Christ is going to be easy, because it's not. In fact, we expect to grow the most when it's the hardest, right? We make no promise that you're going to be liked by all when you follow Christ, or that you're going to get rich or you're going to be healed. That's not to deny that God heals. God heals. It's not to deny that God intervenes and he makes provision. Yeah, of course I believe all that. But is that automatic for every believer? God does that in his good time with whoever he wants, as he sovereignly wills. God moves in and through the rich and in and through the poor. Amen? God moves in and through the sick and in and through the well. Amen? There are some Christians who love God and get cancer, and there are some who get cancer and are healed, and they both love God. Did the person who didn't get healed do it because it was a lack of faith? No. You can spend your time blaming God with that kind of formula. You can blame him for that relationship that didn't work out. You can blame him for, you know, that job that you didn't get. You can blame him for the money that ran short. Or you can learn to look to Christ to be your life, to be your joy in all circumstances. 
That's ex- it's exactly what Paul meant when he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In the midst of all things, I have Christ. And then, you see, when the, when the waves come, I don't get pushed off the rock. And my rock is Christ. See, our promise today is the, is the presence, the power of Christ in our lives in all things. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. God fulfilled the promise he made to Abraham by the succession of these children with the patriarchs. And then circumcision was applied as a seal of of God's promise and a reminder to each generation thereafter. God has made a promise with us, and he will keep it. You'd have a tendency to remember that with circumcision, right? In chapter 6, Stephen was charged with speaking against the law and speaking against the temple. But in fact, through this whole sermon, he is showing how God has been faithful all throughout the Old Testament economy. So what has God given us today? Well, God has given us his word, the scripture, where we can read of God's covenant promises to us through Christ. We have prophecy that reminds us that God sovereignly is in control of the future. And God has given us certain signs. We might even say traditions that he has handed down specifically. Baptism and circum- uh, communion, excuse me. Baptism and communion. Get that right. You want to make sure you get the right one. <laughs> but God has set up these. Baptism and communion. To put our attention and remind us of the eternal truths of the centrality of Christ and the gospel.